I'm there. All right, cool. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, worship team. Um, they don't like this, but um, for me to ever highlight them. But uh, Pete, I just want you to know, uh, you intensified my worship when I saw you. You were turning red on that thing, and so I appreciate the percussive um, bringing us into the Lord's presence. And thank you all for just leading us this morning. Um, one note of praise and, and just rejoicing together. That's what we're to do as a community is rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I think we're pretty good about sharing when there's a time of weeping or something going on um, and struggling. But uh, at times we can forget to just praise God. And um, the Boisvert sent me a text this morning. Uh, many of you know Jailene. Uh, she is from China. Uh, if you don't know her, you may have seen her. She has been here for a, almost a year and has been part of our young adults ministry and been part of our, uh, our church, um, even serves uh, in our nursery at times. Her mom came over uh, for a visit. She was, they were here on Christmas Eve together, if you may have seen her. Um, Jailene's own story is that she came to Christ while she lived in California in college. And then I think through that as well, the Lord led her mom, I think her grandmother, some other family members to faith. But that's not an easy deal um, in their culture. Well, her mom's over here for about a month, and she was very encouraged and blessed, she said on Christmas Eve. The Boisvert sent me a note saying that this morning her mom is being baptized by a Chinese pastor. I think it's in Plano or Richardson. And so I just wanted to share that with you. If you see Jailene, uh, just share in her joy. Uh, it's a great, great thing. And so we want to do that. Um, we're going to, if you would stand before you get real comfy and sleepy, stand. We are going through a series called Lord Teach Us to Pray. We've been in various ways um, going through Luke's version of uh We've been rehearsing Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. We've also been going through passages, particularly in Luke, where the Lord teaches us to pray. And this was from week one. If you go to the next slide, we're just going to say this out loud. When we come back to the end, we will uh, add some texture and some heart uh, to this. I'm not saying pray heartless and empty now. But simply, there's something to when we, um, when Eric was leading us into the song we just sang, we didn't realize it, but we were, we were actually obeying Colossians 3. Um, let the word about Christ richly dwell within you, and the you is y'all. And we're to sing with psalms, hymns, spiritual uh, songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. That word about Christ is who he is and what he has done, both in the cross as well as his sustaining and shepherding work in our lives. Okay, and so we have rehearsed that. And now we're going to rehearse this. This is good for us to rehearse because Jesus gave it to us. But also, in, just like in the singing, maybe you have a scenario where I don't see a way, but I know you will. Maybe God brought something to your mind. Maybe as we pray this and we pray for our daily bread, it may not be bread, but there may be a need. There may be a request. There may be an ache in your heart. Know that the Lord hears. Know that the Lord calls us to pray for one another. It's give us each day our daily bread. And so as we do this, let's pray it out loud together um, and uh, go with me here. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, Bankus, you mind, uh, you mind cranking it down in here? Thank you. I don't want everybody napping, just the usual nappers. Um, 
Lord, teach us to pray. That's our series. And again, like we just rehearsed, he said, all right, well, here's, here's some framing. Use these words to voice what's in your heart. And I said, and honestly, with that, he doesn't want you to pray exact words, but maybe as we pray them, uh, let them, you know, pray until you pray. And so he has provided that, those words. And then we looked at the way Jesus prayed. He often slipped away. Uh, he made that a regular rhythm to reconnect and commune with his father. Uh, that both uh, reassured him of his identity and uh, clarified and bolstered him with, with clarity and courage in his calling to go, nope, it has been good healing people, but the Lord wants me to now go over here and, and proclaim the message. And we all need that kind of clarity in our lives. But particularly if Jesus had that rhythm, it's probably a good rhythm for us as well. Then last week, uh, so appreciated Avinash, um, he preached on just the posture the humility that the Lord is looking for, praying more like a tax collector than a Pharisee, and particularly our approach um, to God. And he said, you know, to get, to get right with God on a fellowship kind of way, it's, we've, we've got to shoot him straight. We've got to get real with him. Um, well, today, um, we're going to continue that. And in our series, we've said this is not just to preach about prayer, Lord teaches to pray, but to practice. And so I just want to ask the simple question, how is learning to pray going for you? How is relearning to pray going for you? How is um, rehabituating prayer going for you? How have you been practicing getting alone with God to get God and not just get things? Prayer can be difficult to practice with the noise in our world or if like us in our household or also, but also the constant clamor in our own hearts, the constant pulls on us, the constant worries, the constant cares. Prayer can get squeezed out. And before we get into the passage, I wanted to start there to say we have to admit that we are often prayerless, and then we find ourselves restless and worried because of it. We have to acknowledge that our prayers, my prayers, are often lacking oomph, or depth. My prayers can sometimes be shallow or hollow if my heart is detached and not really into what I'm praying. Now, I would say, you're like me in one of those situations, don't stop until you really feel it. Pray until you pray. But with praying, we can easily lose steam and peter out. Today, what God wants to encourage you and me you and me who are prone to peter out with this simple and yet vital truth. Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for me. Jesus intercedes for you. It's a very simple message, but it's a very stabilizing message. It's a very true and vital message. Jesus is our intercessor. What that means is he's our go-between between us and God. He is our one who goes before God on our behalf. Yes, he's also called advocate, which is similar, but an intercessor is someone who goes between and goes before someone that either we'd like to have intro, uh, introduction to. You think about it in the business world. Hey, could you introduce me? Could I get, could you help us get a coffee and get this thing? Like you're a go-between and you get them before. Well, Jesus goes before the Father. He's actually sitting at the right hand right now, 
interceding for you and for me. Dane Ortland has this quote um, in his book. I believe it's this one. Could have been his other one. Gentle and lowly. Um, for those, for those who can um, take it, I guess, because he quotes some old Puritans and stuff. It's one of the top five richest books I've ever read because it's nothing but pointing us to Jesus. The one who is gentle and humble in heart and says, come to me. Well, Dane Ortland says this, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. Our prayer life stinks most of the time. But if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room, or what if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room? Few things would calm us more deeply. Well, we're going to hear Jesus praying, not just in a next room, but in what was called the upper room. On the last night with his men, really the longest, darkest night of his life, he's about to be betrayed, put on ridiculous trials, and put on the cross. And it's in that upper room where we're going to go. If you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. Uh, Before I read our passage, I just want to set the scene. And uh, Chuck Swindoll, I I really appreciated his uh, work uh, in this passage. And so I'm just going to let Chuck, Chucky baby, set the scene for us, okay? Charles, sorry to be more respectful. Just listen, they're in the upper room, Jesus with his men. Um, And before we get our passage, Judas leaves. But here's the scene from Swindoll. The Passover meal had been eaten, the symbols of the new covenant given, the plan of redemption set in motion. And with Judas scurrying to the temple, nothing stood between Jesus and the cross. He had said and done everything he could Those who had eyes to see and ears to hear had been reached. The forces of evil would now push the Lord toward his redemptive destiny, just as God had intended from the beginning. The disciples, unaware of the cosmic import of the night or that night, bickered like children. While their master entered the longest night of his life, they tried to settle the matter of who would sit where the uh, where in the new government. In the middle of the Messiah's rebuke and reassurance, he held the gaze of the future lead apostle. I want you to now turn, uh, look at verse 31. If you're in Luke 22. Because they've been disputing on who's the greatest. We don't know this, he doesn't tell us, but I can imagine that Peter is part of that. One of, for one, he was a loud mouth. He didn't, um, he didn't lack for words. But he also really was the recognized leader among them. And so just imagine in your sanctified imagination that as this dispute is going, Jesus is at the crisis point in his life, and they are just oblivious and selfish. He turns and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Simon, Simon, 
He doesn't call him Peter, notice. Remember when he met him, it was this is Simon, and he says, you shall be called Peter, because that it comes from Petros, meaning rock. You're going to be a rock for me. And boy, that put wind in Peter's sails, and he was ready to go, and he'd have some crash and burn moments. But now we're here at this moment, and as this dispute about who's the greatest is happening, he turns and says, Simon, Simon, I want to warn you. When he does this, this is like, um, and not only does he not say Peter, but he repeats Simon. This is like when your mom uses your first and middle name. Or like for me, some of you will be shocked at what my real name is. It's not Buddy. If they say Lawrence Eugene Lyles Jr., right, it arrests my attention. That's, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Simon, Simon. And with his attention arrested, with him stopped and listening, he gives this warning. Behold, meaning stop and take this in. He says, Satan has demanded permission to sift y'all. I mentioned in Colossians, it's the word about Christ Richard dwelling within you. It's plural. In this verse, it is y'all. Satan has asked permission to sift y'all like wheat. Not the 12, Judas is gone. The 11. He says, that's what Satan has asked. Just picture grain in a sieve, and it's where the heads of grain are taken apart. In English, the, the, so that's the picture. They were familiar with it, you know, going through a sifter, a, si a sieve. The expressions we sometimes use in English are picking somebody to pieces or taking somebody apart. You might do that in a debate. You might do that in a marital, um, you know, spat. And then later you're like, whoops, that win wasn't such a win. He says, Satan wants to sift y'all like wheat. Now, I want you to note this, that Satan does not have free reign to mess with pressure, torment, or worse than that, with God's people. He has to ask permission. Some of your translations um, have demanded. Some may have asked. The idea, though, is approach with some intensity, but it's because I got to have your permission. I can't go rogue, even though he was rogue. He is rogue. He's got to ask permission. I want that to be a comfort to you and to me. Now, the other side of that, as we'll get through, is Jesus seems to have said, permission has been granted. But that is what he has sought. Um, this is a Job-like permission slip. If you know the story of Job, Satan is asking permission to sift Job. He doesn't use the word sift, but... And notice in, in the Gospels... There, uh, when Jesus was tempted, I can't remember if it was Matthew or Luke. I hope it was Luke since we're in Luke, but I, I don't recall. It says that, that Jesus had resisted the temptation, so Satan went away until an opportune time. Now is the opportune time. He's about to go to the cross. The men are about to be sifted, and maybe this whole thing will crumble and fall apart. And so this is that kind of situation Satan is asking of God at this opportune time, Jesus is going to be betrayed, unjustly tried, condemned to death by crucifixion, 
the disciples are going to scatter. And feeling like the story of Job, if you don't know it really quick, Satan there seeks to receive permission to sift Job to show God that his upright one, that God has smiled about. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Notice God initiated that. But he says, hey, you're, you're upright, Job. He only fears and worships you, Lord, because God has, you have blessed him with a large family, immense wealth, possessions. So Satan says, you know, let me mess with him and let's see how true to you he is. So God allows Satan to strike Job, strike all he has, but he says, just don't lay a hand on him. So he does that. He loses his flocks, his herds, his sons and daughters, basically wipes out almost everything he has. And Job's response, anguish, mourning, yet falling to the ground, and he worships. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. About 15 years ago, we sang that about every third Sunday. You know, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's upbeat. It probably shouldn't be an upbeat song, but... Nonetheless, it's good to say he gives and he takes away. That was his response. Despite all that happened, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That's the testimony. So Satan asked permission again with God. Let me take it further or farther, saying, um, let me strike his flesh and bone, and Job will then curse you. God grants this as well. And Satan does a lot but he particularly covers Job's body with boils and he's scraping them. I mean, I get like, I start wincing. He's scraping them with pottery, the boils. And his wife says, do you still hold firm your integrity? In other words, integrity is wholeheartedness. Do you still hold firm your integrity? Curse God and die. That's a temptation for Job to go, you know what, you're right. I don't deserve this. I, look at all I've done for God. And right there in that moment, it's very tempting. But again, Job, he, he hangs in there. Now he's got some friends that are lousy. I'm not going to go through the rest of the book of Job. But Job ultimately is humbled and transformed and then flourishes in a fresh way in his relationship with God and honoring God in his life. Well, back to, to the upper room. That's Satan's vicious intent. The, this, this threat is real. If Jesus grants Satan permission, Satan intends to sift all 11 of them, the plural you in verse um, 31, lets us know that he wants to sift all of Jesus' men. But in verse 32, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned, the yous there are singular. So he wants to sift all of them. But verse 32 lets us know that Satan's primary target is their leader, Simon Peter, because of those singular yous. So Satan's intent, it's sinister and it's strategic. If I can get to Peter then his failure will cause Jesus and the other 10 followers to lose heart, their faith petering out. Jesus looking at Peter after he's warned him, he says, but, verse 32, but Peter, 
or Simon, Simon, but I have prayed for you. I'm, I'm going to pause because I, I think every Sunday we should be digesting, reflecting on him, and, and hearing God's word for wherever we are. He, do, he knows every single appointment you had this week, every single disappointment. But as we sang, I don't know how you'll make a way, but I know you will. Some of you have a little thing that needs a way through. And some of you got a mammoth thing that's been months long. And some of you are weighed down. And some of you are on the verge, maybe not being directly by Satan sifted, but saying, lead me not into temptation. The trial I'm going to be in, or I'm already in, the disappointment, the, the, I'm just pulled every which away. Hear Jesus saying, but I am praying for you. Buddy, I am praying for you. Lawrence Eugene, I am praying for you. He says that to Peter. He says, that's the warning, and it's going to happen. What has Jesus been praying for him? Look again at verse 32. But I have prayed for you, what? That your faith, your trust in me, your heart connection with me of allegiance and trust will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, so there's going to be some form of failure. There's going to be some form of detachment, desertion, lapse. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He prays that his faith, though sifted, will not ultimately fail. Though he will pucker and he will deny knowing the Lord, he says, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that that won't be your ultimate end. What's Peter's response? Well, I think his response echoes how we walk through almost every day of our life, particularly evidenced in my own prayerlessness at times. He says, But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Well, he's going to actually get get to do both, just not like he thinks or or like he shouts in his boast. Everybody else may desert, but I won't. Now, that's not a bad thing. But what is kind of obvious to us, because we already know what happens, is there's a lot of stoutness in your declaration is going to be pretty much hollow in a few hours. And we, like him, can often say, I got this. I'm not, you know, I'm not tempted as other people are in that. Ah, that's, not my, that's not my area of weakness. Or, yeah, I know that's their struggle, but, I mean, I kind of have this corner. We don't say those words. But our prayerlessness speaks that of us. Or just our boasting are with him, saying, I've got this. Jesus lets him know, Peter, your allegiance is going to falter within hours. Look at verse 34. He said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And then he moves on and he says, things are going to ch- change. The pressure's going to build. Next week, we're going to look at his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He is going to be betrayed by Judas. And then Jesus is arrested at that betrayal, taken off into these trials. And what he says happens in 34, verse 34, happens within hours of Peter saying, that'll never be me. That'll never be me. Jesus is saying, it, it's going to happen. But it won't be the end. Now let's look at verse 54 through 62. Because I want us, again, not only I want you to personally digest this and, and feel the truth that Jesus intercedes for you where you are today, this week, and he does so always, but I want us to see that Jesus knows what he intends to do in terms of restoring us again and again and again. Verse 54, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are the one, uh, you are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. But look at the next verse. See, Jesus' words were confirmed before the rooster crows. It's going to happen. It's confirmed audibly, but it's also confirmed in the next verse visually. Immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Some of your translations might say looked intently. That is the idea. That's the gravity. He looked, and it's to look directly and intently. It is a lingering stare. It's one of those... Um, it's one of those knowing looks. When you have a relationship with someone, you have uh, history together, you have stories together, and you don't have to say anything. And Jesus looks intently. I would say this, not to shame Peter, but to say, we know, don't we? For the Spirit... Maybe I should pause on that. Spirit coming. We'll worry about that theological issue later. But the Lord is convicting his heart in that moment because the rooster crows and his soon-to-be Savior on the cross, but his Lord looks at him with this lingering stare. There are no words needed. The words are still ringing in Peter's heart. Look. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. 
And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. The sting of that loving stare, but the sting and the, the hollowing out of your words. He hears his own words. He hears Jesus' words. And he's undone. Now, it's a godly doing, this undoing, that the one who bragged has been humbled. Now, I want to, uh, we're not going to look at John 21, but I just want to skip, uh, skim the rock through a little bit more of the story. Uh, in Luke, except for one other time where he's briefly mentioned in the resurrection, Luke actually doesn't mention Peter a whole lot more. That's interesting. But then we get to Acts, which is Luke uh, volume 2. And it's when he says, now, um, I'm going to go away, but you're going to be my witnesses. But you need to wait until the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You're going to serve me, declare the gospel. You're going to spread the word. You're going to be my ambassadors and witnesses. But first you need to wait until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it's in that waiting time, that happens in Acts 2. In Acts 1, Peter, the one who had failed that we just saw, the one who wept bitterly because he knew that he had failed. Something happened in between. That's John 21, the breakfast on the beach. They went back to fishing. They're in the Galilee area. And they come and Jesus is, they don't know who it is, but he tells them to fish, you know. And same thing happens, and they're like, it must be the Lord. And then Jesus and Peter are walking on the beach post-breakfast, I assume. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And you know it already. I won't go through it. He asked him three times, do you love me? Peter is much more humble in his response. He's asking, do you unconditionally love me? And Peter's like, let me take it a J to the JV answer. Let me brotherly love you, that kind of idea. And he said, each time he asked him three times, do you love me? He says, you know that I love you, Lord. He said, well, then you know, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. The last time, Peter is grieved. He's grieved like, I, des I deserve it probably. You know, the, the, I, I, I wasn't loving you all the way, no matter what it meant, if it cost me my life or reputation or whatever. I, I failed you. But yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus restores him. In Acts 1, now they're waiting for the Spirit to come. And that there, Peter stands and strengthens his brothers. Jesus said, but I prayed for you. And when you have turned, and honestly, it's when you have been turned and returned by me, strengthen your brothers. What's he doing in Acts 1? They're praying, and Peter's leading, and he stands up, and he says, now it's time for us to do the Lord's business. And what is that business? This is very important in Luke's narrative. His business is to lead them in choosing Judas's replacement. Luke is very careful and very artful to put Judas and Peter side by side. Lord's Supper happens. Judas, go on out and do what you're supposed to do. They're trying to figure out who's going to betray him. Judas betrays him. Peter, I will never fail you. I'll never 
you know, um, tuck my tail for you. And he fails. They both fail that night. And now Peter, the one who failed but has been restored, is now standing to say, we've got to choose the replacement of another one who failed. Why do I give you that? And I'll I'll read in my journal, here's what I wrote myself. Judas and Peter, betrayer, denier, they're side by side. And I just wrote, I wonder what coursed through Peter the moment that he stands while waiting on the Spirit to strengthen his brothers, leading them to choose Judas's replacement. Beyond conducting the business, so we got to have a 12th apostle. What thoughts and emotions course through Peter? We're replacing Judas. He and I both failed Jesus that night. And then you've heard this phrase before, but did he, did he think to himself, there but for the grace of God go I? That could have been me, but for the prayers of Jesus. And Jesus restored me, and he intercedes for us. I, I petered out. But Jesus, he prayed for me. He restored me. He restored my faith, and my faith did not ultimately fail. I just think, That moment for Peter, I wish that we could hear him share that. It wasn't just, let's conduct the Lord's business. All right, y'all pipe down there so we can get the vote in or whatever. I think just like you, when you know the things that, that you still have the stinging of regret of a season when you drifted away from the Lord, or when you out and out denied him, or right now, when you are running from him and sealed off from him, someday would you find yourself in a place going, I wish I would have trusted that he's praying for me now, even though I can't see a way. He knows what he wants to do in you in this moment and in that moment. He knows what he wants to do with you going forward. He intercedes for you and for me. So a couple of things I just want to point out from this story. Number one, I hope that Peter, I hope that you see yourself in Peter. I use the word petered out. I looked this up. Actually, the phrase doesn't, although I would say it probably etymologically somehow came from Peter, petering out. It actually is from a mining term in the U.S., but interestingly, um, it comes from both the idea that, hey, we've been, we've been working this mine and getting out of it what it ought to produce, but it's petered out. The rock is no longer the good stuff anymore. We've got to move on to the good gold somewhere else or whatever. But also, you know, of, of saltpeter, and this is where I'm now going to be starting to tread water, but evidently it's, it's at least part of exploding when you want to get to the stuff in the mine. But I don't think there's any mistaking the double entendre. I mean, he petered out. And isn't that like me on a daily basis? And sometimes, particularly in seasons when I think I got this together. You, you, the, the, whoever, you think of your top three, four speakers you love hearing. And Brian has some great ones coming to the Right Now Conference. I know he knows some of them and some of their stories even better. But think about them. You realize that a lot of them will share their stories that 
some of the loneliest moments in their life, some of the most regrettable moments in their life happen after an intense, awesome, watching God work through them. And then they were ripe for, I got this, this isn't going to happen to me. Well, that's, you don't have to be on a stage or known or have books or anything like that. You and I are in the same place. We sang it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But today is a fresh chance, not just to sing it, but to say, yeah, that's me, Lord. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. And the great thing that this passage in action is showing us is that's exactly what's happening in his courts right now. He is at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the throne. And he is praying for you. Always. So the first thing I want to say is beware. Let's beware of overconfidence in our own strength. And let's actually be relieved of that because you already know you ain't got what it takes. So we don't have to fake it. And the second thing is be confident and strengthened in Jesus' interceding and praying for you and hear that he's not done with you. Two passages, we're going to show them to you here. They're going to show us the throne room or what Jesus is currently doing. And then I want you to have them, write them down. I want you to have them and go camp in them some this week when you have a moment or carve out a moment. First of all, it's Hebrews 7. We said that the new, new covenant was kind of instituted or, or like, hey, here's where we are. These, these things symbolize the new covenant in my blood in the upper room. That's what happened. Hebrews, a lot of stuff to wor- work our way through, okay? But if this can help you kind of come up for air with it, he basically says the old covenant couldn't cut it for what was required really of us. We needed someone to fulfill that for us, and there's a new covenant. It's a better covenant built on better promises with a better and superior high priest, the one who's conducting and representing us to God and God to us. And Jesus is our great high priest. And in Hebrews 7, he says, he's not a priest like the other ones who had to keep working and keep working and keep working. But he's a priest who lives forever. And they also died. He's a priest who lives forever. And in Hebrews, it also said, when Jesus had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right A priest only sits down when their work is done, except for Jesus. He did because the work is finished on the cross. And yet now is a new work that he gets to sit down doing, I guess. Because Hebrews 7, 25, Therefore he is able, this is Jesus, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them. It is finished. His work was finished on the cross. Atonement for sin, paid for. And yet we're still sinners. We're still deserters. We're still drifters until one, the, the, um, the penalty of sin has been met, been paid for. And the power of sin doesn't have to rule our lives, but we're in that struggle of the in-between then and when the presence of sin will be eradicated forever. And so Jesus' current ministry, as weird as this might be to you right now, is to have the ear of the Father on your behalf, always. Not when you're, you know, you got the blue ribbon for all you've been doing and you've been memorizing Scripture, all all good stuff. But when you're in a temptable moment, when you're, I've I've blown it moment, when you've really made a wreckage of your life, 
He always lives to make intercession for you. Romans 8, the other passage. Romans 8, it's like hard to go there without the entire chapter. But Romans 8, just this section. We know Romans 8, 28. We know God works all things together for those who love him, those called according to his purpose. But we don't know the next two verses, which actually that good that he's working is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He's not done with you, and he will finish that work. And then he gets to this. But we're going to be those who doubt, who uh, the accuser accuses us. We're going to accuse ourselves, and rightly, in some ways, we are sinners. How in the world would he keep a hold of us? Why wouldn't he just say, I'm done with you? He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Satan and his sifting? God is the one who justifies, who's the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And another thing very encouraging, just a few verses above, is the Spirit of God also intercedes for us, and he does so with groans that are too deep for words. You ever been in a place where you're like, I don't even know what I'm feeling or struggling with. I don't know how to put this into words. I wish God would help me find the words. The Spirit is groaning for you. I'm not saying, like, let's all have prayer meetings. We just start grunting and groaning. But I think in your time alone with God, you're just going <sighs> to... The Spirit translates the heart of the Father to you and me and translates our heart that we can't really nail down or voice to Him. What I want you to hear in the, the, this that he intercedes for you and me is called consolation. I want there to be a lift of your heart and mind. I want there to be the message that you can try all you want. That's not going to fix it. You don't have the ability, but you do have a Savior and a Lord and an intercessor. And he's not done with you. He knows your strengths and weaknesses. He knows the trials you're in, the trials you will face, and that he will be alongside you in your trial now, and he's praying for you. He's praying for you always, and he's praying for you now. A couple of questions. What renewal is Jesus talking to the Father about for you? What renewing of you? Where do you need his forgiveness for him to set your feet upon a rock and firm your footsteps? How does Jesus want to use your own story of his restoring you after your failure, neglect, drifting away, overconfidence that got exposed? Or maybe he's exposing now in a gracious way so that you might again be a strengthener, a refresher, a minister of others because of your own story. He intercedes for you. The reason why I call it consolation, Psalm 94, 17 through 19. You don't have to turn there. I just wanted you to hear it, write it down, and look at it later. Because so many things can pull us apart and weigh us down. I pray this often. And if I know that you are in an anxious place, I pray it for you. He says, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have dwelt in the abode of silence. I would have felt all alone and abandoned. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations 
delight my soul. This is a consolation right now and always. Jesus has you on his mind, and he is interceding. He is going before the Father on your behalf and mine, and we need him too. I just want to tell you in closing, make this more personal for me. Um, I'm going to leave right after this, so I'm not rude. I'm, I just got to drive to Memphis, okay? Um, found out this week that my young life leader, his name is Bill Irby, only 60 years old, he died. I'm going to, we talked about whether I would go or not. My parents even said, oh, you know, we'll represent you. I was like, there's no way I'm not going to that man's funeral. Often, I ask, who's that person that influenced you? God used, you know, are there one or two? And particularly when I'm with men, who are some men that really God used to encourage you, build into you, whatever? Bill Irby always makes that list. He was my young life leader in high school. When I was a freshman, he pulled me aside. and He said, I know you're a believer, and I know you know a lot of kids on campus. They just without any title. They just kind of brought me, brought me into the fold and said, we want you to be part of this. As a young man, that does a lot. He affirmed me. But then as I got to know him, so I, I, he was my young life leader then. Then I went up to college. I came back, and I actually became one of his volunteer leaders for several years. And I really appreciate that once I got to know him in that context, he was very open and vulnerable with us. He let us know Man, there have been a couple, and he told the stories. Here's a time when I just kind of was drifting. Here's a time when I just got tangled up in myself and just forgot God. He was so vulnerable. He was so, then because of those times, talking about the Lord's being so gentle and gracious to him. And he would often say, how in the world, why in the world would God ever want to use me? But he has me here. And he taught us to return to the Lord and return to the Lord. And yet none of us have it together. But the Lord is there. And I just, I think of him. And I don't know if that resonates with you or not. But you may be in a place where Bill was. And I know later on in life when I'd experienced times of drift. And gosh, what an idiot I was or whatever that that God would remind me there'd be echoes of others who were willing to share their story of God meeting them in their, their time of failure and being so gracious and restoring them. Would you um, stand? I'm going to have the worship team come lead us, and I need you. That, that seems like the appropriate response. We are often those who peter out, but I've actually written this prayer for us to pray out loud, to practice, to practice that we are not self-sufficient, to thank him that he intercedes for us, and to declare in prayer before we sing it that we need him. Uh, Would you put the prayer up there? Let's pray this out loud together. Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed in my life. May your kingdom come and your will be done on my patches of earth as your will is done in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Holy Spirit of God, sometimes I don't even know how to pray. Help me find the words. While I can't find the words, intercede on my behalf with groans too deep for words. Translate my heart to the Father and the Father's heart and mine to mine. Help me see that even though I've gone my own way, forgotten you, God, neglected you, God, you are not finished with me. You desire to restore me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Help me discover the purposes you have for me and live into those purposes each day. O oh, Jesus, my sustainer and intercessor, as you prayed for Peter, now pray for me. Intercede and plead for me that my faith may not ultimately fail. Though I lapse, though I wince under pressure, though I waver and waffle in my resolve, your grace is sufficient to keep me. Your mercy restores me anew. Your perfect love strengthens me to strengthen my brothers in you. We give you thanks as the lifter of our heads. Lord, we need you. We give you thanks for being the lifter of our heads, and we magnify you anew as Lord. Amen. When we finish singing, we're dismissed.